If you have a Bible with you, please open your Bible to John chapter 11. It's almost midnight here. I don't think I've ever preached at midnight. And the only time someone did that in the Bible was Paul in Acts chapter 20. And as you know, it didn't go too well. A young man named Eutychus was sitting by the window and he fell asleep as Paul preached and fell down from the third story and died. Well, thankfully, Paul was able to resurrect him and all was well. But I'm not Paul and I'm on the sixth story. So I'm not taking any chances. I'm keeping my son away from the window. I must confess, death has been very much on my mind lately. The coronavirus has obviously contributed much to that. About 9,000 people have died in Canada because of the virus. And just a couple of weeks ago, we had the death of Dr. J.I. Packer. And in Christ the King, we had three deaths just this year. Libby, John Wilson, and Father John. And for the size of our church, that's not a small number. And just two weeks ago, I was at a funeral of Karina's cousin who passed away suddenly. How should Christians think about death? What I'd like to do today is to consider the story of the death of Lazarus. I'd like to look at this chapter in five blocks of verses. And in each block, we'll find an irony, something that is contrary to what might have been expected. You actually see a lot of that in John's Gospel. And through the irony, we often get an insight into a truth that the Apostle John wants to convey. And so I'll address five ironies in the story and suggest three implications and conclude with one invitation. With that, let's dive into the passage. This is a familiar story to most of you. We want to look first at the block of verses from verse 1 to 6. We are told that a man named Lazarus, who lived in Bethany with his two sisters, Martha and Mary, was ill. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles outside Jerusalem. Jesus at that moment was somewhere north in Galilee. And then he got word from Martha and Mary in verse 3 that Lazarus was ill. The Apostle John, who wrote this gospel, makes it a point in verse 5 to tell us that Jesus loved the three siblings, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And so here's the irony. Verse 6 tells us that so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in a place where he was. What's going on here? John is telling us, here that precisely because Jesus loved them, that he delayed going to be with them. That's not quite what you would expect. If Jesus truly loved his three siblings, we would expect him to rush down to be with them. But that's not what happened. And what was Jesus' justification? Look at verse 4, he says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And that's not how we normally think of illnesses, is it? We hear of someone who is sick, and the first thing we do is to pray that God will take the sickness away. We don't usually remind them that their sickness is meant for God's glory. 
But that's exactly what's happening here. The point Jesus is making here is that even Lazarus' illness and subsequent death is intended to glorify God. And I hope that challenges us in the way we think about illnesses and suffering. We should be praying for healing, no doubt. But more importantly, we should perhaps pray first for God's will to be accomplished through the sickness and his name glorified. Well, the next block of verses in the chapter comes from the verses uh, from 7 to 16. And so we are told in verse 7 that after two days, Jesus was ready to start heading to Bethany. But his disciples were not exactly excited about it. Well, remember why they were in Galilee in the first place. Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem because the Jews were looking to arrest Jesus. We see that in the previous chapter, in chapter 10. They had accused him of having a demon, of being insane, of blasphemy, and, and they were wanting to stone him and arrest him. And so Galilee, which is up in the north, was definitely a much safer place to be in than Judea, where Bethany was. But Lazarus is now dead, and for the sake of his disciples' faith, we are told that Jesus had decided to hate for Bethany. Recognizing Jesus could not be persuaded, Thomas said to his fellow disciples in verse 16, with, I think, a lot of devotion and courage, let us also go that we may die with him. Now that's ironic. Why? Because when Jesus was later arrested, when the time came for Thomas to stand with Jesus, guess what? He fled with the rest. He ran away. But here Thomas spoke better than he knew. Because Thomas, together with the other disciples, will die because of Jesus. In fact, traditions tell us that many of the disciples will later die horrible deaths, martyred for following Jesus, but just not this time. As Jesus explained in verse 9, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in a day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And just three chapters earlier, in chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus tells his disciples, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so to walk in the day, to see the light of the world, to have the light in them is to walk with Jesus, to follow Jesus. And that's the best thing we can do, follow Jesus, because if we are following Jesus, we will not stumble. And we can have the confidence of God's pleasure in us, even in death. Even in the midst of frowning providence, we will see the smile of God. Jesus knew it was his Father's will for him to be crucified shortly. And he knew it was his Father's will for the disciples to live on, to be witnesses of his death and resurrection. And while they live, what Thomas said, echoes what Jesus expects from his disciples then and his disciples today. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, Jesus said, and take up his cross and follow me. To take up the cross is to die. Our next block of verses come from the verse 17 to 27. In this section, we have verse 25 where Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, what exactly is Jesus saying here? 
I mean, is he saying I am able to resurrect Lazarus and I'm able to give him life? Well, I'm sure he is. But I'm sure Jesus is also saying more than that. And here's the irony. Someone like Martha understands resurrection. She says to Jesus in verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Someone like Martha knows Jesus. She says uh, to Jesus in verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the God who is coming into the world. And so someone like Martha can know Jesus and the resurrection and still clearly didn't get what Jesus was saying. Well, we know she didn't get it from the way she responded later in verse 39. And there Jesus asked for the stone at the tomb to be removed. And Martha replied, Lord, by this time there will be an order for he has been dead for four days. She wasn't expecting Jesus to raise Lazarus. So we know she didn't quite get it when Jesus said to her that he is the resurrection and the life. And I'm not sure many of us do. What does it mean for Jesus to say, I am the resurrection and the life? Well, perhaps an illustration will help. Think of Steve Jobs. It's hard to think of Apple, the company, without thinking of Steve Jobs. You can imagine Steve Jobs saying something like, I am Apple, and you would know what he means. It's not saying he is the company Apple or, or any of the Apple products, but rather he's saying that he's so identified with Apple that without him, there is no Apple. As the commentator puts it, in the same way, what Jesus is saying here is something like this. So exclusively am I the provider of resurrection and life, that apart from me, there is no resurrection and no life. Jesus is stating an exclusive and absolute truth. He's not a means to resurrection. He's not one of the many paths to eternal life. He is the resurrection. He is the life. Martha thinks of resurrection only in a distant future. Jesus wants to reshape her thinking radically. He wants her to know that he has power over death. Jesus is able to resurrect Lazarus, not just at the end of times, but in the present, then, then, because he has power over death. And so we move on to the next block of verses from verse 28 to 44. Look in particular at verse 35. That was my favorite verse as a kid. You see, in, in our church, we used to have a memory verse competition where we are tested on how many verses we can memorize. Needless to say, John 11.35 was always one of them. Just two words, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Problem is, we never stop to ask, why did Jesus weep? And here's the irony. Jesus of all people knew he was going to resurrect Lazarus soon. Nine more verses and Lazarus would be hopping out of the tomb. And so why did Jesus weep? Well, to understand that, we need the context. Martha has now left Jesus. She goes home to tell Mary he was looking for her. And so Mary made her way to Jesus, who was at this point still outside the village. And seeing Jesus, she fell at his feet weeping, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then we are told that when Jesus saw her weeping 
and the Jews who came with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Well, if you're looking at the Bible right now, you may find a footnote here that says he was indignant rather than deeply moved. I think that's a better translation. But he still hasn't quite captured the intensity of the feeling. In fact, D.A. Carson would suggest he was outraged in spirit. Jesus was not just moved in spirit, whatever that means. He was outraged. He was angry. So why the outrage? Well, there have been many suggestions, but here I think that theologian B.B. Warfield explains it best. He said, and I quote, The spectacle of the distress of Mary and her companions enraged Jesus because it brought poignantly home to his consciousness the evil of death, its unnaturalness, its violent tyranny. In Mary's grief, he sees and feels the misery of the whole race and burns with rage against the oppressor of men. It is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he had come into the world to destroy. His soul is held by rage and he advances to the tomb in Kelvin's words as a champion who prepares for conflict. And this same rage and anger at death also prompted Jesus' grief as he sees Mary and others weeping in his compassion for those he loved. Jesus wept. And then he comes to the tomb and asks for the stone to be removed. And he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. As John tells us, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And with that, the man Lazarus was freed freed from the greatest enemy there is, death, freed to live again. The last block in this chapter is from verse 45 to 53. And here we see for the second time in this story, a man who spoke much better than he knew. In verse 49, Caiaphas, the high priest, said to those plotting to kill Jesus, you know nothing at all. He went on to say, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. We are told in verse 51 that he did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Well, the irony of it all, if there's anyone that day who didn't know what he was doing, it was Caiaphas. He had just eloquently articulated the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, that one man should die as a substitute for others so that all need not perish. But it was not quite what he understood. And because Caiaphas and the other Jewish leaders knew nothing at all about God's plan, we are told in the last verse in this passage, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So what might be some of the implications from this story? Let me share three briefly. Well, first of all, we need to recognize that Jesus makes outrageous statements about who he is. In fact, it was his outrageous statement in chapter 10 that got him to trouble. 
so much so that he had to leave Judea and head for Galilee. And here in chapter 11, verse 25, he makes the outrageous claim that I am the resurrection and the life. And that's why in verse 45, we are told that many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisee and told them what Jesus had done. Can you imagine, in the face of what they just witnessed, the resurrection of a dead man, there were Jews who would go to the Pharisees to tell them what Jesus had done, clearly to get him into trouble. There's a lesson for us here. Some people will not believe in Jesus regardless of the evidence before them. They think Jesus' claims are outrageous because they have a hard time believing the claims are true, no matter what the evidence says. But that's only half the problem. In our 21st century today, people think the claims of Jesus are outrageous because they are absolute and exclusive. It's not even a question of whether the claims are true. After all, we now live in what is called the post-truth world. By the way, the word post-truth was the word of the year for Oxford English Dictionary in 2016. And it's defined as, and I quote, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief, end quote. So for many people today, it is all right for Jesus to make claims about himself. The truthfulness of the claims is not the issue. What is intolerant and offensive is that Jesus claims to be the only way, not one way out of many. In this way, in this day of pluralism and political correctness, the claim that he is the resurrection and the life is the problem. Because in our current climate, we're expected to respect each other's point of view. But we know that can't be right. It can't be right to respect everyone's point of view because some views and beliefs just don't deserve to be respected. For instance, the belief that people should be judged based on the color of their skin. Surely we can't respect such a view. In fact, we need to repudiate such wrong views. Someone wise once observed, it is often said that you should respect other people's beliefs, but that's wrong. What's vital is that you respect other people. It is not disrespectful to say to someone that we think their views are wrong. Disagreement is not evidence of disrespect. We can disagree without being disagreeable. But because we are all made in the image of God, we all respect to one another and how we treat one another, even the worst criminals. Because Jesus asked of us even to love our enemies. And if we are to love our enemies, surely we are also called to respect those we disagree with. Jesus' claim to be the resurrection and the life is no less a truth claim than the claim that the sun rises from the east. It's not a matter of preference, like you prefer apples and I prefer oranges. Rather, it's absolute, it is exclusive, it's either true or it is not true. As C.S. Lewis puts it so well, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, 
You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about these, his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. End quote. So no option exists where we can say, well, it may be true for you, but it's not true for me. And now if we believe it's true, and I certainly hope all of us here do, we need to be prepared to defend it. As the Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And so implication number one, Jesus' claims are absolute truths. Believe it, share it, defend it. The second implication for us is this. In the midst of a pandemic caused by COVID-19, how should Christians think about death? Well, first of all, we need not fear. Well, again, hear what C.S. Lewis has to say about this. In the 1950s, C.S. Lewis was often asked a question about how Christians should live under the shadow of the atomic bomb. His response is much to say to us in this current pandemic. It's a bit long, but it's worth quoting. And C.S. Lewis wrote, in one way we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? Well, I'm tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed, as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor incidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors, anesthetics, but we have that still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. This is the first point to be made. And the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pine and a game of darts not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds." End quote. 
I think it's a helpful way to think of COVID-19. Of course, we don't want to trivialize the impact COVID-19 is having on all of us. It is ghastly. It is a tragedy at every level, but it is not new. We have had many times in our history where death was a constant reality and many people have died. The Spanish flu, the two world wars, and so on. So let us not panic. Let us not allow fear to dominate our minds and paralyze us. Let us keep living and laughing and serving and working and enjoying life to the best of our ability with those we love. Our sovereign God is on the throne. He has everything under control. So our first point, we need not fear. And secondly, we glorify God even in death. Well, most people today prefer not to talk about death. Death is not pleasant. It is morbid and many people fear death. I think it was Woody Allen who said, it's not that I'm afraid to die. It's just that I don't want to be there when it happens. Well, just another witty way of saying he's afraid of death. Compare that with Father John. Keith was relating to us during our pastoral staff meeting what Father John told him when he saw his doctor and the results of the latest test didn't look too good. And after breaking the bad news, the doctor proceeded to tell Father John her plans to change the treatment to slow down his worsening condition. At this juncture, Father John stopped her and told her he did not want to proceed with her plans. When asked why, Father John said it was because he belonged to a faith community that believed death was but a portal to another existence, a much better one. He did not feel the need to go ahead with the new treatment if it wasn't going to heal him, but merely prolong his life just a little more. This also became an opportunity for Father John to share the gospel with the doctor. Now, I don't think the doctor came to believe in Jesus that day, but I'm sure her conversation with Father John must have left for her much to ponder over in her quieter moments. After all, I'm sure she doesn't get to see patients very often who think of death the way Father John does. What does it look like for our death to be for the glory of God? Well, I think Father John's death is a good example of what that might look like. Let's be clear. Death is not okay. And that's why Jesus was outraged we don't avoid the subject of death because death is a serious problem. But Jesus is our solution. He has conquered death. He has the power over death. And for us who follow Jesus, death has become powerless. And because of that, we need not fear. We can glorify God even in death. Which brings us to our final implication. How should our understanding of death make a difference in our lives today? And perhaps a good way of thinking about this question is to see how Lazarus' death made a difference in the life of the three siblings, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Well, think of Martha. She's most likely the eldest of the three with quite an obvious oldest child syndrome. We see her in an earlier story in, in Luke chapter 10, verses uh, 38 to 42, 
where Jesus got invited to the house, and while Mary sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to his teaching, we are told Martha was distracted with much serving. In fact, she marched up to complain to Jesus, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Well, notice the pronouns, the my and the me's. Well, in our story today, in John chapter 11, again we see Martha, the one going out of the village to meet Jesus while Mary stayed at home. And it's Martha again who goes back to the house to get Mary to come out to see Jesus. It's Martha again who protests the removal of the stone at the tomb. But see what happens after the resurrection. Well, for that, you have to look at the next chapter. Does your Bible, if you look at chapter, John chapter 12, verse 1. It is now six days before the Passover. And as Jesus was in Bethany, they threw a dinner party for him. But here, unlike before, in the 11 verses of this story, Martha gets mentioned in all of two words. Not two verses, two words. In verse 2, Martha served. She's no longer cast as the troubled, distracted, and complaining Martha. She just served. And I believe what happened is a result of Lazarus' death and resurrection, a result of finally understanding who Jesus was and what he came to do. Martha has learned not to focus on herself, but on Jesus and others. Not serving herself, but rather serving others and serving Jesus. Well, think of Lazarus. Hardly a word from him in all the stories. Well, to be fair, he was dead most of the time in the story in John chapter 11. But even after he was raised, we didn't hear anything from him, not a squeak. The Gospels have no record of any words uttered from him. Yet after his resurrection, we see in John chapter 12, verse 10, that large crowds of the Jews came not only to see Jesus, but also to see Lazarus. Why Lazarus? Well, because he has now become a powerful witness for Jesus. We know that because the chief priests were now making plans to also put Lazarus to death. Why? Because in verse 11 we read that on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Think of Mary. In the Luke story, we see her at the feet of Jesus listening to his teaching. And in our John chapter 11 passage today, we see her in verse 32, coming to Jesus and falling at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then in John chapter 12, verse 3, we see her taking a pound of expensive ointment and anointing the feet of Jesus and wiping his feet with her hair. And we are told in verse 7 that Jesus recognized she did this because of his impending death. More than the others, Mary understood Jesus was going to die for our sins. And the reason she knew when many others didn't, well, I think it's simply because she had spent a lot of time at the feet of Jesus. And because Mary had spent time at the feet of Jesus, she now poured out a pound of ointment that cost a year's salary for the average worker because Jesus had spent time at the feet of Jesus. She knew Jesus intimately 
and she wanted to give her best to Jesus. Martha, Lazarus, and Mary, lives transformed as a result of the death of Lazarus. Well, let me conclude. Because of the absolute truth that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, we need not fear death. We should instead live lives that are transformed, lives that are lived for the glory of God. That, that sums up pretty much what I've said so far. And so let me leave you with an invitation. Well, remember what Jesus, when Jesus raised Lazarus, he came out with his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus commanded those with him, unbind him and let him go. What about you? If you were to live a life that glorifies God, what do you need unbinding from? What are some of the linens in your life that need to come off so that you can be freed to serve wholeheartedly the God who has conquered death? Can I invite you to spend some time this week to reflect on this? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.